Good morning. Happy New Year, right? It's a new year, a new reason to praise his name, right? He brought us through a, a pretty wild uh, 2020, right? We've seen so many different things. Um, we're going to pick back up where we left off. Um, you know, we took a brief break um, over the holiday season and, and we did a couple messages on the spiritual gifts. And so today, as we begin this new year, we'll find ourselves continuing through the gospel according to Luke um, in this book series that we're doing. And, and, and this passage that we have today is going to be a comparison of old things with new things. Uh, many of us would love to put 2020 behind us, right? I would imagine that today there's going to be a number of sermons preached around the country, maybe from the same passage, maybe referring to 2020 as this old cloth or these old wineskins that ought to be done away with as we move ahead into 2021. I can hear a pastor saying, you know, everything's gotten very political. So I can hear some pastors saying we have to get rid of the old wineskins of the Trump administration and prepare for the new wine, right? We cannot put on the new garment of equality and equity and inclusivity on the old fabric of systemic racism, injustice, or patriarchy. The theme of this year will probably be out with the old and in with the new, right? And I think many people might hijack this passage here, maybe turn it upside down and encourage people to take charge of their destiny, to forget about getting back to what we used to call normal, and instead embrace this new era, these new norms that cannot flourish on the foundation of yesterday. Some of these pastors will be found in the church. Um, other of these pastors will be found in Washington, leading the Democrat and Republican congregations. Some would argue that this is the Great Reset, an attempt to destroy a system to the point where this brand new foundation can be laid with new principles, a, a new perspective and trajectory for mankind that can be instituted with minimal pushback. While there's this overarching theme of newness in our passage today, the message is old, it's tried, and it's true. While there's this overarching theme of newness within the context of the text, this is a historical foundation for us. While there's this overarching theme of newness, it's unfolding is rooted in the will and the decree of God before his manifested glory was revealed in creation itself. And we're going to open our Bibles today to Luke chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 39. And today I have the honor of presenting to you once again Jesus, the real Jesus. And what we'll see is quite contrary to popular belief. Today within the context that we live in, in our culture, and many cultures around the world, going along to get along is kind of the, one of the highest virtues of the day. And you see that this narrative that you must go along with these ever-changing societal norms, what it does is it causes us to reshape scripture. And by consequence, our actions through the lens of pop culture, however we all know, just because it's popular doesn't mean that it's biblical. Today we're going to see Jesus once again flipping the narrative upside down. So often in scripture, Jesus is confronted by people, some with evil intentions, others with genuine questions. But in either case, the way Jesus responds often reveals a lack of understanding and an ignorance in the questioner. And even how well-intended biblical things can become unbiblically salvific. And so while it's true to say just because it's popular doesn't mean it's biblical, just because it's biblical doesn't mean that it's biblical. Our understanding of this book has to be balanced, and the primary way we do this is to observe the ministry and the life of Jesus. 
And so that's the reason why I end every podcast with wisdom and knowledge revealed. And that's because apart from Jesus, all we have is information. Some of the most dangerous people in the world have a plethora of information at their fingertips, yet they lack knowledge. They don't have understanding and they are missing wisdom. And so in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So as we dive into the text today, may we walk away with understanding. May we walk away with knowledge and wisdom so we can be balanced and we can apply properly the things that we learn today. So I'm going to pray. We'll read the text and uh, I'll get into the message. Um, Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for waking us up once again. Thank you for bringing us through 2020 into this new year. Um, Lord, I pray that this year will be a year that we will celebrate, um, a year that we will be excited to, to be called out of darkness and into your light. Lord, I pray that this will be a year that the church will be a light in our nation and that we'll see many coming to save in faith. Um, through your church. Um, Lord, I pray that you will bless the message today. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me. I pray that you will humble me. Um, Lord, and I pray that um, I pray that uh, we would be able to apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So verse 33 in Luke chapter 5. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skin will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires for new, for he says the old is good. Just to kind of give you an outline of where I'll be going today. Um, the first thing we'll look at is verse 33, of course, which is a question. Um, the next verses uh, 34 all the way through 39, you have illustrations given by Jesus in response and then the final thing we'll look at is how the, the believers should live in light of the things that we learn from this passage today. And so as we consider the question, we'll learn about tradition and fasting. We'll learn about fundamentalism and the authenticity of scripture. Next, we'll consider the illustrations given by Jesus in response. And we'll learn once again of the position, the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus. And of course, we'll see once again the, the divine nature of Jesus. And finally, how does this text inform us in, in respect to how we ought to live? How does it shape our theology and our understanding of hope? How does this shape our theology and understanding of salvation, joy, and what it means to be content? Now, we know the ministry of Jesus, right, is filled with full of, is full of shocking behavior that oftentimes led to conflict. Um, here in our text today, we see one of these many controversies that came about in the life of Jesus. If it's not bad enough that Jesus chose Matthew, a tax collector, also known by Levi, uh, you see that in chapter 5, 27 and 8. If it wasn't bad enough that he chose him, in verse 29, Matthew, Matthew throws this feast. He throws this party, this celebration to, to, to celebrate what just took place. 
And when you look at the guest list, the guest list was filled with sinners. The guest list was filled with tax collectors that he used to work with. And if that wasn't bad enough, the guest of honor was Jesus. And they weren't just eating, they were reclining at the table, which kind of gives this image of enjoying the company of one another. Some might even say that he was affirming them or he was guilty by association. Of course, this causes the Pharisees and the scribes to be triggered. And so they asked the question, why did you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 31 and 2. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the right. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the application of chapter four, verses 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Unfortunately, they couldn't see it. This is the context in which this question comes forth from a place of frustration and ignorance, from a, a place of pride and personal piety. The disciples of John, along with the Pharisees, are elevated above the disciples of Jesus. I mean, think about what this question is implying. Verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, first, I kind of already said it, but just let's consider why I believe that it was these two groups asking the question. They said to him, him being Jesus, in verse 33, the disciples of John fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours eat and drink. Um, both Matthew and Mark also recorded this account. I think it's important for us to put them together. And when you do, some might actually see what they would call a contradiction. <clears throat> but if we take a more of a forensic approach, these are actually corroborating accounts. Turn to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to look at verse 14. The Gospels, as we know, they're witnesses to the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so when you have witnesses, you're going to naturally have certain details that might be mentioned in others and omitted from another. But what you won't find in the Gospels is a contradiction. Verse 14 of Matthew chapter 9. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is interesting because someone might take Luke's account to imply that it was the Pharisees who asked the question. Remember, they approached Jesus, the Pharisees, asking, why are you eating with sinners? And so then they come with this second question. So you would think that they in verse 33 will be the same who asked the first question, right? As far as why you would be eating with these sinners. And so what you can do is you can look at this passage three different ways. First, it could be the disciples of John who asked the question. The second thing it could be is those among the Pharisees and the scribes who asked the question, or it could be all of the above, which is why I love multiple choice, because it's usually all of the above. <laughs> but both John's disciples, along with the Pharisees and scribes, they both approach Jesus with this question. And why do I say that? Well, because there's another account in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples <clears throat> do not fast? Well, if I'm a police officer and I'm listening to these three accounts, it's far more helpful to have these variation in details than for it to be verbatim. This actually speaks to the authenticity of the Gospels. 
And so I think the people asking these questions were actually led by, now this is speculation, but I think they were led by the disciples of John. We know that Mark was a close companion of Peter um, because of that in 150 AD. Justin Martyr refers to the Gospel of Mark as the memories of Peter. Irenaeus in 185 AD calls Mark the interpreter of Peter, saying he wrote what Peter preached about Jesus. We know Luke was a physician and he had more of a historical and an academic approach to his gospel. And there's a difference between these two gospels and the gospel of Matthew, because Matthew was an eyewitness to this account. Right. In fact, the question is a result of Jesus picking Matthew as his disciple. So I say that the people were asking the question, the people who were asking the questions would have been led by the disciples of John because it was Matthew who was there and he was the one who emphasized that it was the disciples of John who came to ask this question. But when we put the three accounts together, configure, uh, con considering the fact that the question came from a place of frustration and a place of pride and piety, both the disciples and John, along with the Pharisees, came together approaching Jesus. I could imagine them talking over one another, where the disciples of John would be like, look, the disciples of the Pharisees fast. And then the Pharisees would say, look, the disciples of John also fast. And together they were probably like, but your disciples are eating and drinking when they should be fasting. Now, I don't say this to put one against another. Rather, we should read the Gospels in harmony. And when we do, we find details, not contradictions. And this is remarkable when you think about it, to have a variation in detail that doesn't change the message, but instead it bolsters, it confirms the message that we have in the Gospels. Um, another quick example would be in Matthew 26, when Jesus was brought before Caiaphas at the council. And Jesus is questioned about whether or not he said he would destroy the temple. I'll get straight to the point. It starts in 63. But when we look at verse 66, they're talking about what kind of judgment he deserves. They say he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some, someone slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, why would Jesus have to prophesy about who spit in his face and who struck him? Well, Mark and Luke's gospel gives us further detail. In Luke 22:64, it says, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Why would he need to prophesy? Well, because he was blindfolded. These are hidden jewels that we often read over. When we consider them, though, they would actually cultivate confidence and assurance in the authenticity, the transmission, and in the reliability of the text. This is a great blessing and a means of grace for the people of God. Not only is this a question about fasting, but they're still tripping over the fact that Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Eating and drinking together is often a biblical expression of fellowship, a phrase often used by Luke. He uses it 10 times in his gospel. I'm in a Table Talk article written by David Camera. He wrote, Christians have always enjoyed sharing a meal because of the rich biblical symbolism, because it has a tangible expression of service, love, and unity. And because of the opportunity it affords for true fellowship and genuine community, end quote. I think if Jesus was a politician, this would have never taken place, right? Politicians are too concerned with optics, right? Jesus wouldn't have been able to focus on his ministry to the sick, which is the reason why he was there. And so the question is, how could you have fellowship with these people because of what fellowship is? Eating and drinking is to be in unity on a deeper level with people during this time. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 John 1.6 and 7, 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, I'm sure they saw Jesus as walking in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us all from sin. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching in the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. You see this fellowship and breaking of bread oftentimes together. One more verse, Philippians 2.1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit. Yet Jesus is eating and drinking not only when supposedly he should be fasting, but with people who don't share in the spirit of God. But isn't that just like Jesus? This isn't anything new to, to walk among the unworthy, right? If he would die for the unworthy, breaking bread with the unworthy doesn't seem to be out of line with his character. And I think this would probably cause issues in the church today. I think it does. Um, I don't think this passage is only descriptive. I think it is also prescriptive. But it's not so much of a prescription for fellowship as much as it is for being out there um, fulfilling the, the, uh, the ministry that we have of reconciliation, right? Who are those who are being called to be reconciled to God? Where are you going to find these people? You're going to find them in the bar. You're going to find them in a strip club. You're going to find them in places where people don't think you should be. Right. You're going to be rubbing shoulders with people who others don't think you should be rubbing shoulders with. But you won't just find them there. You'll find them on Wall Street. You'll find them in D.C. You'll, you'll find them in at work and, and in your home as well. But knowing this reality, the, the weightiness of what's at stake, are we to wait for the right optics or should we meet people where they are? Um, that's what Jesus did. I think he models that for us to meet people where they are, no matter what other people might think about you being with those people. Not only was this an issue that he ate with these people, but the disciples of John, along with the Pharisees and scribes, accuses Jesus of breaking the law. At least that's how it comes across. Right. Because supposedly he should be fasting. The Pharisees being so caught up in their own righteousness, building laws around the actual law so that they wouldn't break the law. They would bind that on other people. And they actually forgot that fasting was only required during one time. The requirement of fasting was only required during Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Later, it became tradition for people to fast for other reasons, and they took it even further than that. Um, later in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable, and interestingly enough, this parable that he tells is about a tax collector and a Pharisee. In Luke 18, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. They made this duty about fasting. They made it a duty to do it twice a week and they would brag about it. They would look down on people who didn't fast as they did. Unlike the tax collector who, by God's grace, he recognized that he was morally bankrupt, no matter how much good he did, because it picks up in verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he would beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I would much rather eat and drink with this tax collector than to be around someone um, to, to try to be in fellowship with someone who's blinded by tradition. Um, I would encourage everyone to listen to the cross-examine episode on fundamentalism because you'll be surprised at 
As Kurt says, you can be a fundy yourself and never know it. Um, for some, it's fasting. For others, it's what you eat. For one crowd, it might be this doctrine. For the other crowd, it's that doctrine. You know, we can fill in this blank that will put you in the category of a fundy. However, when your tradition causes you to be puffed up and you elevate that tradition to the level of or above the level of the essential nature of God and salvation, you're a fundamentalist blinded by your tradition. And we all have them. All of us have traditions and some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Some of them honor God. Others don't. And we need to repent of those. But one thing that I love that Dr. James White says is we have to own up to those traditions to evaluate them. And we have to be balanced by those traditions. And so he says the person most enslaved to their tradition is the person that believes they don't have any traditions. I think we should move on to the next verse where Jesus puts on this apologetics clinic. He responds with a question in Luke 5 verse 34 and Jesus said to them can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them <laughs> I can imagine this coming off different than how sometimes we read scripture monotone like they're coming up to Jesus during a celebration like your disciples should be fasting and Jesus responds like can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them like what are these guys talking about right this this question to me comes off like a jab it kind of stops them in their tracks and then he follows it up with a combination of illustrations that not only answers his own question, but he exposes the foolishness and the errors of their own question. And so he responds with sarcasm. The proper expression during this time would be laughing and dancing and eating and drinking. Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom and Jesus is calling sinners to repentance He's calling sinners to forgiveness, according to verse 32. So why should you fast during a joyous occasion? There's a scroll that I found of fasting that's dated back to the Second Temple time period, and it lists 36 days on which fasting would be forbidden. And if you would look through the list of what would forbid fasting, the theme that you would see is that fasting was forbidden during festive times. So Matthew's account actually gives us some insight as to why Jesus responds this way. Um, in his response, he uses the term mourn in place of fasting in Matthew chapter 15 or 14, verse 15. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. It reads, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So this is about your posture towards what's going on in this time. But what's even crazier is the fact that Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. Think about it. If Jesus isn't God, this is a very blasphemous question or statement to make. He refers to himself as the bridegroom. Israel was the bride of God, right? He was known as their husband in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, God says, they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Isaiah 54, 5 says, for your maker is your husband. Who is this husband? The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. I think you can put Jesus with all of these titles. He is called the God of all the earth. They were married to God through the covenant on Sinai, right? Which is why you have terminology like Israel's adultery in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. They were alienated from God. It was, it was, the term that was used as they went into exile often was that they were divorced from God. You see that in Jeremiah. You see that in Isaiah as well. 
And so the Pharisees would know this. This, this would be a red flag. Yet in those times, they knew God from afar. Now you have the bridegroom present. You have Emmanuel, who is God with us, which will make mourning a very inappropriate response. The groom is with his bride. This is a time of joy and excitement, right? There's a time for weeping. There's a time to mourn, but that's not this time. On the contrary, this is a time for laughing and dancing as it gives those two different realities in Ecclesiastes 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. However, verse 35 does say the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. If you didn't think Jesus was the bridegroom now, who was the one that would be taken away from them? Right. So the days will become when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast or they will mourn in those days. The days of mourning was going to come. The days will come when Judas will crash the wedding and betray Jesus. He will be arrested and taken away from them. He will be mocked and bruised. He will be beaten and scorned, treated unfair, right? He will be abandoned by 10 other disciples. During those days, the bride of Christ would not be fasting to lose weight. They wouldn't be fasting to post about it on whatever would have been the equivalent of social media back in those days. They wouldn't be fasting because of their own personal piety or to show how morally upright they think that they are. They will be fasting because the result of their sin actually caused the greatest injustice this world has ever seen. Jesus would bear our sin and our grief. He would be stricken and smitten and afflicted by God. This is the proper time to mourn. It's not a secret what Jesus is speaking about here. He's talking about the time between his arrest and his resurrection. Fasting can include mourning, repentance, seeking divine deliverance. Fasting could be a means of asking God for pity or to ask God to relent. We see that in Jonah. We also see that when David hoped for God to have compassion on him and that his son would live. So David actually fasted for those things. People would also fast during times of war to ask God for guidance. Yet there will be no greater reason to fast. There will be no greater reason to mourn, no greater reason to cry. There will be no greater reason to deny yourself of food and to seek God than the time of the crucifixion when the sky went dark and our Savior is enduring the wrath of God, enduring the punishment that we rightly deserve, that our sin will be so great and our righteousness so stained that the Son of God would have to leave his throne, that he would be born as a baby in a dirty manger, to be treated as dumb, to be stripped and whipped and spit on and left to die beside two thieves. How could you eat? How could you be excited during a time like that? How could you dance? How could you laugh? This is a time of mourning. This is an ugly scene, but this scene is the means of our hope. But there was still mourning in those times because of it, right? Just like Jesus, he wept over Lazarus and he knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still wept. But Jesus says the days will come. And he concludes the illustration by saying in those days that there will be a time to mourn, but there will be a time where it will go. Joy comes in the morning and at times seems joy comes through mourning. But we know the grave couldn't hold him, right? That's why the joy, the, 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 the mourning doesn't last always, right? Three days later, sorrow will be turned to joy. Mourning will be turned into dancing. While he was our substitute at, on the cross, he carried our sorrows and will be vindicated by the Father and resurrection. We see this in John 16, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
After the resurrection, it's time to celebrate again, right? Our Savior has overcome for us. He has reconciled man to God. He has washed away our sin. For a quick moment, let's look at Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. This is after the resurrection. This is after the resurrection, the greatest Bible study that has ever taken place, right? Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus, and he's going through the Old Testament, and he's showing them how all of these scriptures actually pointed to him, how he was the fulfillment of all of these scriptures, how the scripture itself is about Jesus. And so they're excited. They return to Jerusalem, and they gather the 11 disciples, and they tell them what took place. Verse 36 as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. The fast was over. The time for mourning has passed. We celebrate this every week, right? This is the cup that is poured out for us as the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And because of that, the believer lives in a continuous state of celebration, a continuous state of feasting, which is further explained in the parables concerning the new garment and the new wine. So let's continue in our passage in Luke 5, verses 36 and 7. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Now, we know Jesus often told parables, and oftentimes it was to keep uh, the message hidden. However, parables can also be a proverb. It can also be a comparison or a story, some type of an allegory. But here we have a metaphorical or a figurative saying. Um, the camp director at Teen Haven would all, always say a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly picture. Well, here we have two earthly stories that seem to have nothing in common. One saying about a garment, another saying about wine. <laughs> However, these two illustrations are painting one picture of how Jesus is greater than and what Jesus is instituting is greater than these man-made traditions. And even more than that, you see the contrast also all the way through the verse 39 about the new. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to take a brief moment and talk about these two illustrations. No one pairs a, tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Matthew tells us why it's really not that deep. In chapter nine, verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. It's pretty simple, right? If you take a new piece of fabric and you sew it together on an older piece of fabric that's already taken the time to shrink, Right, This new fabric, be, not being aged at the time, but as it does age, it's going to shrink and it's going to tear away from the old over time. Sure, at first it might seem to be functional, 
You might get away with it not looking different at first, but if you've ever shopped at Gabriel Brothers, right, you're going to tell over time that something's not right with this fabric. And those who are properly clothed are going to be able to point out the issue with it as well. But what does this have to do with the question about fasting? I think we have to pause on passages like this and not read so fast through them. We have to see what's being said. I think it's crazy when you consider all the ways that people might try to interpret these illustrations to try to be super deep. But what Jesus is saying here is actually challenging thousands of years of tradition and religious practice. What Jesus is saying here would eventually lead to the reason to mourn. It would lead to his death on the cross. He's disrupting what has become the normative and what has become commonplace, not just among the Pharisees, but it was so normative, it was so commonplace that it was also the norm among the disciples of John. Similar to the example of the torn garment, Jesus says in verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Wineskins were made from small animals like goats. They would take off the hair and they would sew the skin together. Um, it would hold water. They would use it to hold milk. Obviously, they also used it to hold wine. But what's the problem with storing new wine inside of older wineskins? Well, if you place new wine into old wineskins, similar to the old garment, the new wine begins to ferment. And the old wineskins are no longer sufficiently pliable. It becomes brittle. The activity of the new wine will stress it beyond its ability to yield, and so the skins will burst, and not only are you going to lose the wine skin, you're going to lose the wine as well. Now, as I said, these are metaphors, right? Jesus is getting at something here, and what he's getting at is that the old and the new are incompatible. When you attempt to integrate the new with the old, you, you don't only destroy what you have, you destroy what you're putting together, you destroy what you've taken from, right? You've torn from this new cloth and you added it to the old, which is pretty odd. I mean, I know people who buy old cars and they take the parts from the cars and they use it when their new car breaks down, but do you know anyone who would buy a new car and piece part together the old? Now, it's not apples to apples, but it just makes me think about that. It's just kind of weird. But and so this, this newness is emphasized in Luke's account. We see the word new seven times. The old is what's inferior in that contrast. The old is not sufficient for the new. The new tears away from the old. The new wine breaks out of the wineskins. These illustrations point to the newness of the kingdom that's brought about by Jesus. The new wine and the new cloth is referring to the gospel. It's referring to the new covenant. The old garments and the old wineskins are referring, referring to Pharisaic Judaism and to the old covenant. But because of their traditions, they weren't ready for it. They knew the scriptures, but they never understood what, what Jeremiah was saying in chapter 31 when he says that the days will come when he would establish a new covenant. This is actually echoed and further explained in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Why would you want to hold on to something that's vanishing away? For us today, why would we want to hold on to something that's obsolete? Especially when you consider the difference between the two. Why would you want to hold on to something that's insufficient? I mean, think about the comparison. The old was written on tablets of stone. The new was written by the spirit and on our hearts. The old is of the letter, the new is of the spirit. In the old, the letter kills, but in the new, it's the spirit that gives life. 
In the old, Christ is veiled in the types and the shadows, but in the new, Christ is revealed as all-sufficient in the revelation of God's hidden mysteries. In the old covenant, it was mediated by Moses, but this new covenant is mediated by Christ. The old required the blood of animals, but the new was established in the blood of God himself. This is Hebrews chapter 10. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have, he, he will sanctify us through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered once and for all time that single sacrifice, right, what did Jesus do in comparison to, to, the, to the other priests? Jesus would sit down, right, at the right hand of God, waiting for the time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. When you pick up at verse 14, for by this single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying this, it says in verse 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. The new garment is so much better to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus only a foolish man would think that he can take a patch from the righteousness of Jesus and sew it onto his filthy rags and think that it's going to hold up when they're standing against God on Judgment Day. The new wine is so much better. Um, we see this recording in the first miracle of Jesus in John chapter 2. Everyone serves the good wine first, right? And when the people drank freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The good wine was kept until the day of Jesus. This is the first of the signs that he did in Galilee, and it manifested his glory. The new wine, it was saved into this moment, and it's more glorious than the old wine. This is the point that we have to hammer away when we're talking about or talking to these Jehovah's Witnesses, the Judaizers of our days, these black Hebrew Israelites, right? Even people who look internally to find peace, they must taste and see that the Lord is good. They're not going to find anything in and of themselves. The wine of God that he gives, this new wine, is greater than any other tradition. It's greater than any other way. He is the one way. He is the only truth. He is the only route to eternal life, to the forgiveness of sins, to have peace with God. And he's the reason why we celebrate. Unfortunately, not everyone is going to recognize this. Verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Jesus ends his argument the same way he started it, not with a question, but with sarcasm. Some folks take this verse to say that Jesus is being portrayed as the one who establishes the old and preserves the old rather than abolishing the old. However, as I stated earlier, the point of the two parables here is with the new and not with the old. That's where the emphasis is found. And if we're going to be consistent, we have to allow what was said previously to inform what follows to inform what follows. And when we do, this comes off, as I said, as sarcasm. This is actually an indictment for those who would cling so closely to the past that they will be blind to the realization of God's kingdom. The old wine will be their condemnation and they would drink it to their destruction. But thank God that we know that it's Jesus who took that cup for us and he's given us new wine. 
But the Pharisees, they just couldn't get enough of the old. At times, I think we would call the disciples of John maybe the weaker brother, right? They couldn't get enough of the old either. They've acquired a taste for the old and they have not come to understand the freedom that's found in the new. So what is this passage teaching us? Well, it's teaching us that Jesus is greater. This passage teaches us that Jesus is better. It teaches us his righteousness is sufficient and the law is inefficient to save. This passage teaches us that traditions oftentimes corrupt and destroy the gospel. It takes away our joy. These traditions take away our peace. It teaches us that these things are the foundation of these things, joy and peace, is Jesus. That Jesus is the source of our laughing and dancing, our eating and drinking. That he's the source of a new and greater final covenant between God and man. If you haven't tasted of this new wine, I invite you to join us today. What you have is stained by the world and your own sin. I invite you to put on Christ. I invite you to a life of joy and peace where there's no reason to mourn, but all the more reason to celebrate. Now, does that mean that this path is peaches and cream? You know, that it's a flat, smooth path? No, it's going to be rocky. But on this road, you'll find freedom. On this road, you'll find forgiveness. On this road, you'll be liberated from sorrow, from bitterness and from self-righteousness. And instead of looking to yourself, you will rejoice as we await the coming of our Lord together. So let this be the theme of our new year, that no matter what took place last year, no matter what might happen today, no matter what we'll face tomorrow, let's consider these scriptures. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That sounds like something we should be celebrating as we await with excitement. In fact, that's what Jude 121 says. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Christ to eternal life. Luke 12, 36. Be like men who are waiting for this master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. We celebrate because Christ came. We look back and we celebrate because Christ died. We celebrate because Christ resurrected. We celebrate because he's coming again, and that feast will be the greatest feast of all. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I pray that we leave here encouraged today. Lord, I pray that we will live in a constant state of celebration, a constant state of being grateful, a constant state of fellowship with our brothers because we share in the one spirit. Lord, I pray for the rest of uh, our time together. Um, Lord, I pray that you will help us to apply these things to our lives. First, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.